welcome to Dog Logical. I'm your host, Renee Rhodes, the behavior and training specialist behind R Plus Dogs. Here at Dog Logical, I hope to make sense of your dog's behavior and give you insight that gives you the best relationship possible. If you'd like to know more about me or you're looking for your next dog professional to work with, you can find me at rplusdogs.com. And with that, let's get into the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Kerry Schwanz, a professor of psychology with an expertise in compassion fatigue. So I'm super excited about this conversation, and I hope that it helps someone out there. Dr. Kerry, did you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I just want to say first that I'm very excited to be doing this because compassion fatigue is something I am um, extremely passionate about, passionate about as well. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of psychology at a university where I teach and conduct research. And currently, my major research interests are in the area of compassion fatigue and self-care. I also provide free workshops and training about compassion fatigue to local animal rescues and animal shelters. And I've even done some for um, local police officers. In my spare time, I volunteer at a local humane society in my area where I work in cat socialization, help with events, and also with some grant writing as needed. That's fantastic. I didn't know about those, those workshops. I think that would be, um, are they open to just kind of the general public or? So they're pretty small right now um, for the targeted staff at the local humane societies and rescue. So we set them up on an as needed basis. And then the police officers reached out and um, I did a couple for them. So it's um, in my time, my spare time, um, <laughs> you know, when I'm asked to do so, I try to, I try to do that. Um, so right now it's, it's, it's local. I've done a few um, recorded ones for our university, for university students to watch because um, part of my goal is to expand this to the general population and just people in general too, to be aware of compassion fatigue. Um, so maybe at some point I'll expand and have, you know, some sort of um, online version or something like that I could offer, but right now it's local, small and local. Yeah. No, I think that would be a, a fantastic resource, especially for colleagues that I, that I definitely know would, would benefit from something like that. And especially as it's already geared towards the animal professions already. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's good always to start with definitions of things. And so just so we know what we're dealing with, can you tell us what compassion fatigue is? I sure can. All right. Um, it's actually a bit more complicated than, than people might think. Um, there have been a lot of terms that have been around in the literature and in the popular press that have been used interchangeably. Um, you may have heard like secondary traumatic stress, burnout, um, compassion fatigue, compassion stress, etc. Currently, um, compassion fatigue is a multi-component construct. So it's like a umbrella term. Um, it's not a diagnosis, so somebody cannot be diagnosed with compassion fatigue. But what it um, encompasses is actually two components, burnout and something called secondary traumatic stress. 
So a lot of times people have been using the terms compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress interchangeably. And in fact, in early writings um, in the 90s uh, about compassion fatigue, that's exactly what it was, was compassion fatigue equaled secondary traumatic stress, which in um, very uh, simple terms is the tendency to take on the stress and the suffering of others. Now we know that compassion fatigue, again, is bigger than that or more of an umbrella kind of an experience where people experience burnout, uh, experience secondary traumatic stress, and sometimes uh, components of both of those. So if you'd like, I could talk a little bit about the two um, and some of the characteristics of each of those that make up compassion fatigue, if that would be helpful. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so um, burnout happens and it occurs from stress building up. It's like a cumulative amount of stress. It tends to develop gradually over time and people can sort of feel it coming on. It's often associated with things such as too much work, not enough resources, not having a supportive enough of an environment. And some of the symptoms or signs of that prong or that um, side of compassion fatigue, which is burnout, is finding less enjoyment in the work that you do, arguments with coworkers, loss of morale, physical and emotional exhaustion, um, depression and anxiety. Now, what burnout does not usually encompass is fear. Secondary traumatic stress does uh, consist of feelings of fear. And secondary traumatic stress is the secondary exposure to traumatic events, extreme stress that is, is experienced by another. And this could be a person, this could in this case be an animal. And the, we experience that in our role as a helper or a, or a caregiver. It tends to be less gradual and predictable than the burnout part of compassion fatigue. So it seems to and feels like it comes on suddenly without much warning. But I will tell you um, as we talk today that there are ways to still recognize the symptoms and, and, and that part of the compassion fatigue that's, that may be coming on. But it's a little more subtle and hard to recognize. Um, the secondary traumatic stress part of compassion fatigue is associated with post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. In fact, the symptoms are often identical to what you hear uh, people um, mention, explain, complain about having in regards to PTSD. But the difference there, so compassion fatigue, the secondary traumatic stress is not PTSD. PTSD is when somebody is experiencing those symptoms because of a traumatic event they have experienced themselves. Secondary traumatic stress are those kinds of feelings and symptoms um, that, that are similar to post-traumatic stress, but you are not experiencing them directly. You're taking on the suffering, the trauma, the stress that the person or animal who you're caring for or helping has experienced directly. So it's an indirect form of experiencing trauma. And so symptoms of the secondary traumatic stress are fear, having intrusive thoughts and nightmares about the stressful experience or the trauma that this other person or animal experienced, tension, anxiety, and depression. And there, there's some overlap with the uh, burnout. Re-experiencing the event, running it through your head, um, not being able to stop thinking about it avoiding reminders or going numb um, or feeling a sense of depersonalization, 
hypervigilance, feeling like you're um, very jumpy, very nervous, and also feeling depleted as a helper with nothing more to give. Uh, that can also be part of burnout. So it's interesting in, as I've been learning more about compassion fatigue over the years, there is some overlap. So not to get too technical or not to get too much into research, but if anybody has ever heard of um, a type of disability or ADHD, attention deficit activity disorder, there's actually three types of that. So there's um, predominantly an attentive type, predominantly hyperactive type, and a combined type. What I'm thinking about compassion fatigue sometimes is it helps me to think about it in that way. You have compassion fatigue, primarily perhaps the burnout type, compassion fatigue, primarily secondary traumatic stress type, and then possibly um, for many individuals, the two combined, experiencing symptoms of both. And when that occurs, obviously, um, it becomes much more difficult to, to function when having um, multiple symptoms and, and things such as that. Um, but yeah, so it's a bit more complicated than, um, <laughs> than, than people may think. Um, it's also difficult to weed through that terminology sometimes as well. But that's where we are currently is with it being uh, an umbrella term, it's multi-component um, being made up of burnout and secondary traumatic stress. And in addition to that, um, there is compassion satisfaction that is part of this model about compassion fatigue that was introduced by a researcher, Beth Stam, around 1993. And that's the good stuff about being a helper. So I think it's important too, when we learn about compassion fatigue, not to negate or forget about that compassion satisfaction piece, because there are really good reasons why many of us got into our helping roles. And we can really start to focus on what, what feels good about being a helper and building up that compassion fatigue, I mean, compassion satisfaction. In fact, in a lot of the research, the more compassion satisfaction you can um, develop and focus on helps with mitigating those problems with the, the fatigue part of it, the compassion fatigue part of it. So that's a long, you know, explanation of, you know, what it is. Um, but I think it's important to be comprehensive so people can recognize and understand all of that. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I've never heard compassion satisfaction. I have very often heard of compassion fatigue, but not of its counterpart. So, mm -hmm. and it makes sense, obviously, but mm -hmm. um, so just to clarify, you, you can have burnout completely on its own. Um, you can have that post-traumatic stress. Obviously talk has been going on recently, I suppose, with a, a gear towards more awareness and our comfort in talking about mental health, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is talked about quite often, but it is the combination of those two, which is the compassion fatigue. So you can have yes. one without the other, but absolutely um, it needs to be both of those. For it to be officially, I guess, um, from that research standpoint, to be called truly compassion fatigue, um, there has to be at least some components of both going on. Um, I believe so. You know, uh, that's one of the questions I've kind of had with my research. It's almost like the sum is greater, um, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts kind of thing. It's almost like there's a lot of research on burnout and burnout can look like this and studied this way and whatnot. There's research on the secondary traumatic stress, but when you put the two together, whether there's a lot of the burnout, less of the STS, more of the STS and less of the burnout, it becomes almost a different entity of its own. 
right? So it is addressing that the two in some way are affecting an individual and come together for them, for it to be, you know, referred to or, or talked about as compassion fatigue. And how would you go about finding out if that is in fact what you, you are suffering from? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And we're very fortunate that there are a lot of good resources out there and the people who have um, really the pioneers in these areas have really been very generous in terms of sharing information, sharing their in instruments and things like that for free instead of like selling them and making it uh, costly to take, you know, an assessment or whatnot. Um, I just want to mention a few, throw a few names out there that, you know, an individual by the name of Charles Figley um, from an Institute of Traumatology. He's one of the big um, names there, one of the first people to research and um, do work in the area of compassion fatigue. Beth Stam is the person who worked with Figley um, for a while, and she is the first person who introduced the compassion satisfaction. And I wanted to mention those two individuals because they were really the first people to help develop a way to assess this um, and, and develop tools for that. Um, Charles Figley developed the first compassion fatigue test and then Beth Stam um, built on that and developed something called the ProQual. Now that is spelled P-R-O-Q-O-L, Professional Quality of Life Questionnaire. And it is a measure of compassion fatigue. It is also available for free online. So you would just Google ProQual um, and there's a really nice site where there's a self-scorable tool there that people can take and um, an explanation about how to score that and gives score ranges to look at uh, your burnout, your secondary traumatic stress and your compassion satisfaction uh, in relation to what we would consider to be like average levels to see if you're low, high, um, average in those different areas and also the specific questions to help people, you know, examine um, some of the things that are going on with them and also their beliefs and thoughts around around that that could be contributing to it. Now, obviously, it's important um, because this is not a diagnosis, right? But as I mentioned, there are some things that can occur with this, like, um, you know, post-traumatic stress type symptoms, depression, anxiety, and I would always caution, you know, everyone that yes, these are tools that are available free for use, but if a person is really concerned that, you know, they're struggling very seriously because, you know, there, there have been a lot of, um, a lot of information of, of people, frontline workers, veterinarians who have committed suicide. So, I mean, in taking this, people may be at that level, right? Where they have full-blown compassion fatigue and other things going on, you know, to make sure to avail themselves of resources for um, getting professional help. Because that's not something, obviously, with what we're doing with this podcast is we're not, <laughs> you know, we're not doing the professional help, but need to urge people to make sure that they, they get that if needed. Absolutely. Education is number number one when it comes to these these types of situations. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a free resource for sure that people yeah. are allowed to use and 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 excellent in, in just in terms of getting an idea if they're at risk for, you know, different characteristics of compassion fatigue. No, that's fantastic. And thank you so much for for mentioning that. Do you feel like people are poor kind of judges themselves if they're they are going through compassion fatigue? Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to share a little bit of my own personal experience here to answer that. Um, because is that, does that sound good? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, 
I didn't see it coming. And I ended up starting to go over that slippery slope of developing compassion fatigue. So I think it's really difficult for people to um, recognize that you may be moving um, beyond typical stress into something that's a little bit more um, problematic or more into a, a danger zone. Um, the way that I became interested in compassion fatigue, interestingly enough, was not through my professional work as a psychologist and research and whatnot. It came about because of me volunteering at a local animal shelter uh, where I help develop and maintain a cat socialization program. And, and we also have a very um, nice dog walking and socialization program there as well. But I found myself really getting attached to the cats at the shelter and would end up, you know, starting to go more hours. I was going, um, when we had breaks from school, I was going for like eight hours a day at a time, oh, wow. uh, becoming very obsessed with making sure the cats got out of their cages, uh, losing sleep over the ones that had been there a long time or were sick. And I didn't see it. It was like this, it was like that gradual that, that I mentioned a little while ago. It was all of a sudden, you know, I'm going one day a week. Now I'm going two days a week. Then I'm going five days a week. Um, I'm, declining, you know, uh, invites from friends asking me to go play tennis or go out to dinner. I'm starting to not have much time with my own pets. Um, and it just was like, whoa, what's going on? Well, I didn't recognize that. You know, I felt driven. I was like, this is my passion. I'm helping these animals. If I don't do it, you know, you know, I was waking up with nightmares about them too, you know, and, and, and um, obsessive thoughts and things like that. Well, you know, it's interesting because about that same time where I think I was at that tipping point, um, my the director of the shelter was going to a workshop and the workshop was about compassion fatigue. And so that was asked because I volunteered a lot and because of my background in psychology, could I come along? It, a light bulb went off, you know, with that. Not only did I realize, oh my goodness, here I am, I'm, I'm tipping over the edge there, but I was seeing it in the staff members at the shelter and wanting to learn more about how to help them. And I turned to her and I said, you know, she goes, gosh, you know, we would really like to have a workshop like this, but it costs thousands of dollars. And I said, I can do this. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I made it my mission to, you know, and I, I full tilt, you know, I was like, I'm going to learn about this for myself. I'm going to learn about this to help my, my friends who are fellow volunteers and, and who work at the shelter. And I have some great ideas for research. So it just took off um, for me, both personally and professionally. And I, I love it. I learned, you know, I, I read about it constantly. I, you know, I was like a detective trying to figure out and weed through these definitions about compassion fatigue and obviously getting to know about it more and at a level where I could teach it, right? Um, and because you've got to be able to know something and, and whatnot before you can teach it to somebody else. But I also started doing research on compassion fatigue and involving my students in my research, and they helped me with the workshops. So it's been an amazing journey, you know, something that was starting to um, become a problem for me that I didn't see. Um, I was given that awareness through, a, through that workshop. And I think that's a real important point. Um, one of the main things that I emphasize for what I would refer to as compassion fatigue resilience, becoming more resilient to it, is to have a safety net in place where you have um, one or two people in your life that you identify, who you trust, and you empower them to confront you when you become perhaps symptomatic or your behaviors and actions start to differ 
consistently from the ways that you typically act. Um, it should be people that you know well, that care about you, um, and that are also capable of withstanding any of your attempts to deny and deflect it um, when they confront you about compassion fatigue, because that's what I think happens. You know, people are driven to help and, and we help because we care, we're empathetic, you know, um, it's a value that people uh, in our society really get behind, you know, helping others. And you can almost just get on that train and it's it's difficult to to see when it's it possibly could be crashing. So having other people in your life, you know, who you've entrusted to help call you on it, I think is is very important. Yes, I, I concur. I think um my my partner, my boyfriend is is someone who he enjoys dogs, but at the same time he takes a, a bit of a back seat. And outside of that almost every other person I know is either a, a dog professional or a dog enthusiast or an animal enthusiast. So um, it's good to have some, at least one person on the outside going, you know, maybe, maybe we need to step back a little bit. <laughs> right, right. You can even have people on the inside too, yeah. <laughs> where you help one another. You know, sometimes I, you know, kind of, kind of sounds cutesy, but I say, get a self-care buddy because in a, you know, in a few minutes we'll talk about, I'm sure about what you can do, you know, to help prevent or, you know, mitigate the negative effects of compassion fatigue. But, you know, I have a self-care buddy where we share with one another what we're doing each day for self-care and we hold one another accountable and celebrate that, you know what I mean? But then also watch out for those subtle symptoms of, of compassion fatigue sneaking in. That's such an excellent idea. And I think we need more of that in, in the dog professional world because mm -hmm. um, it can be a very challenging place um, emotionally, you know, and competitively, you know, mm -hmm. it, we, we all have a very similar goal, um, but sometimes it can feel really overwhelming for, for various reasons. But I think that would be an excellent resources, you know, to have something like that for, for us. So, um, I, I'm going to take that on board for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, See, we've already helped one other person already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just have to find, I have to find my counterpart. Um, right. if you don't mind me asking, what were you, what were you leaning towards professionally before, you know, you just, you kind of had this, this journey. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, before I became a professor, I was actually a psychologist in the school system. So they're also referred to sometimes as school psychologists. And I, um, you know, was in a helper role really with that, right? I worked with a lot of children who had disorders, disabilities, medical problems, and their families and teachers. So um, I didn't really even realize it, but I was, you know, in that role and drawn to that in um, a very, um, empathetic person and um, sometimes, you know, a very sensitive person. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't end up going into clinical psychology, um, because there are, you know, horror stories about the level of pain and problems and symptoms that um, someone who's actually a practitioner, um, particularly if you're in a hospital or an inpatient setting, encounters day, day you know, day to day. So when I was um, looking at graduate schools, I thought, yeah, I want to help um, people who are struggling but not to that level where it's that serious because I could see it maybe consuming me. So it's interesting that I kind of knew intuitively that I had that tendency and to still go into a helping role, um, but not have it be something that would um, take me down, I guess. Um, 
But so my research was very much related to um, disabilities, particularly ADHD and designing interventions for individuals who have ADHD, um, teaching and learning research, uh, things that correlated with um, academic difficulty and things like that in both, you know, school age and um, college age students. But I started getting extremely bored with that after, you know, doing it for about research in those areas for about 10 years or so. And it was just doing research because we had to do it to, as part of our, you know, promotion and tenure process. And um, when I found compassion fatigue, it took on a whole nother life of its own. It was like doing research because research could help and mean something, you know what I mean? And not that the other didn't, you know, the other still did. I don't, I don't like to just do research to do research. I want to see that we can take it and apply it and, you know, use it to help people. But with the compassion fatigue, boy, it just set off, you know, all cylinders, cylinders um, on fire and, and, and has really um, led to a lot of great uh, new areas for me. And that's also something that happens at the, in the dog professional world is we all get involved because we love dogs and, you know, we all kind of have our, our specialist areas and what really sets that light under us. I mean, for me, I often say fear-based behaviors are my baby because I really, I love dealing with them. I love helping both the human side and the dog side. That's where I kind of come alive almost, Mm -hmm. you know, if we could talk about fear-based behaviors, I'm like, oh, let's go. But I think that's amazing that you had that, that kind of chance encounter in a way. And (laughs) it just sent you on a trajectory that, you know, has led you to this point. It's, it's a beautiful thing, really. Thank you. And the journey began not from my professional work, but from the humble volunteer work I was doing with animals, I think is what is um, so awesome. Yeah, no, I, um, and when we were kind of emailing back forth, I know you said you were, um, a cat person and you wondered if that was going (laughs) to impact my decision, (laughs) which I have a cat. So logical. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, you know, I, when I went back into university, I wanted to work in zoos. Actually, I wanted to deviate from dogs. You know, it's one of those situations where you have this idea and you think, yes, this is, you know, what I want to, what I want to do. And I don't know what I was thinking because I came immediately back to dogs. It was just, I think I needed to deviate a little bit to realize, yes, this is what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) Right. Or what you missed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of times people will think the grass is always greener somewhere else. And you've got to go walk on that grass to see, wow, I had, this is where I should have been and I'm going back. So that's. I still love all animals. I do have so many favorite, you know, different types of animals, but just nothing seems to trump dogs. (laughs) Are there any like prerequisites to maybe someone who might develop compassion fatigue? So someone that might be more at risk for it. Um, Yeah. yeah, So there's been some um, different studies over the years with conflicting results. One of the main ones that has emerged is empathy. Um, which is interesting enough, there are actually mixed results about that. Most of the results, though, are pointing to people who are higher in empathy, right? Those who take on the feelings of others, care deeply about others, compassion for others, um, tend to be more at risk for compassion fatigue. There are a few studies that have found that it's um, not the case or the, or the opposite, but I think probably the majority of it would be, you know, higher in that, that empathy um, would tend to be more at risk. Um, women tend to be slightly higher 
um, in terms of scores on compassion fatigue, but in some cases, it's not enough that it's even statistically significant. That's part of um, what I would like to start getting into for my research, and that's a little bit of where we've um, begun is looking at, you know, um, some of the demographic variables, um, different things in the person's uh, life or personality characteristics that might put uh, more people at risk for compassion fatigue versus others. Um, but thinking about it, um, somebody who has had past traumatic experiences of their own, right, and maybe more vulnerable to that, um, taking it on um, and having more of a um, difficulty with it when they are helping someone else. So they're reliving something that they have experienced. I know that that's, that's something that has emerged, you know, having one's own trauma. Um, pre, sort of pre-existing other types of um, psychological conditions. So um, people who already struggle with depression or anxiety or obsessive compulsive types of symptoms, I think would be more at risk for um, developing compassion fatigue or having it be um, more difficult for them. Um, there's been some things in the animal literature about uh, exposure to neglect cases and also uh, those who are involved in euthanasia being more at risk for compassion fatigue. So there are some personal factors or individual factors that sort of come up in the research. Then there's work and situational kinds of factors that um, would put people more at risk. Uh, age hasn't really been. People have looked at age, and I don't think that currently there's strong evidence for um, age or how long you've been in a particular profession. We kind of think about that, you know, oh my gosh, the longer you're there, you know, it must be taking its toll. But that hasn't really emerged as um, one of the best predictors of compassion fatigue either. So not, not much of a correlation with age or the amount of time in a career or at work. Um, I can tell you what correlates in the opposite direction <laughs> more so because, because that's often what I, I, I'm trying to focus on, you know, more recently in my, um, my current research, if that would be helpful. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so <laughs> what is negatively correlated or negatively related with compassion fatigue is compassion satisfaction. So individuals who are higher in that, right, getting the joy out of their work despite the adversity and the difficulty, um, those who celebrate the wins, right? Instead of focusing on just what's wrong or the negative aspects of work, those who remember to celebrate, you know, that dog got adopted or um, boy, that, that dog has made great gains in, in terms of the training program. Instead of just focusing on what they're not able to do or any setbacks or things such as that. So higher levels of compassion satisfaction are related to lower levels or lower risk of compassion fatigue. Self-care is a big one. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Taking care of oneself, compassion for oneself and self-care is a big um, protective factor for um, helping prevent compassion fatigue and mitigate its negative effects. Now, it's challenging if you think about it because our society, we really celebrate and we value people who are helpers and we talk about how they go, you know, days without sleep, they neglect themselves, they neglect their families and woohoo, look at all they're doing, right? To sacrifice themselves and help others. We value that, we celebrate it. You know, it's on the news, it's everywhere in the media. 
very rarely do we hear, you know, woohoo, somebody took a day off or <laughs> got a got a massage or, you know, did something to take care of themselves. In fact, we as a society and people may secretly look at them and say, oh my God, who do they think they are? You know, you know, thinking about themselves or how dare they when they've got all that other work to do or, you know, how selfish, right? So not only do individuals need to change how they think about and um, their beliefs about self-care, but so do we all need to in general. So we need to stop beating people up for taking care of themselves because it's that old you know, analogy. I don't know if you've heard this and, and I think maybe it's being used to death. So I, I, I hesitate to, to say it again, but maybe not. You, know? you hear when you're flying on a plane and there's trouble, the oxygen masks drop. What do you do? You put on your own oxygen mask first before putting it on someone else. Same thing with self-care. If you as a helper are depleted and push through and keep going on and on when you're stressed, not sleeping, not eating, not taking time to go to the bathroom, how much use are you going to be to help someone else? You're not, right? So it's very important to engage in self-care and people sometimes think self-care has to be this big old, you know, a lot of money to go take a vacation or a spa day. It can be simple. Taking a couple minutes break to walk outside and feel the sun on your face. Getting a drink of water, making a gratitude list, reaching out to a friend, laughing. Um, there's more, um, you know, structured versions of that. Stress reduction techniques like meditation, yoga, exercising, mindfulness, um, but it, they can be very simple that you build into your, your day. And that's where that self-care buddy comes in. You know, literally, hey, I drank a 16 ounce bottle of water. Aren't you, you know, instead of being dehydrated at the end of the day, you text your friend, good for you. I'm glad you're taking care of yourself. Um, <laughs> but also the beliefs part. So in doing my research, that's where another light bulb went off. And I was like, oh my gosh, all right. So this sort of relates a bit to maybe that podcast that you had with Dr. Ryba about, you know, um, adopting interventions and things like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to engage in a behavior, but how do you get buy-in? Well, people's attitudes and beliefs can affect that. And the same thing with self-care. So if every time you're engaging in self-care, you are talking to yourself, telling yourself and believing that you should feel guilty for taking that time and not helping an animal for for whatever, you know, um, hour, few minutes or whatever, or not help another human you're helping, then I think that can really negate any of the positive effects of engaging in the self-care behaviors that you could have, right? So you could be out there, you're taking a wonderful day with your partner, your boyfriend, um, and you're taking a nice walk through nature, but in your head, you're going, oh my God, I've got five clients, um, they're desperate, they're calling me, you know, that belief about that I don't need to take this time for myself, or if I do, I'm being selfish, is counterproductive. So we need to start examining not only engaging in self-care behaviors, but also our beliefs about self-care. And interestingly, you know, we talked about the assessment of compassion fatigue. Um, there is no assessment tool out there that I'm aware of that taps into self-care beliefs. So a colleague of mine and I and some of our students we developed a self-care beliefs instrument to look at that and examine it. And we're in the beginning stages of seeing how that, you know, relates to aspects of, of compassion fatigue. And interestingly, this is really cool. And I, I, I'm hoping this will hold up with other um, populations, but 
we started our research by um, looking at these variables in college students because they're available to us. You know, um, it's easier to start doing preliminary research with with people who are you know available as your sample. Um, so we studied compassion fatigue, and that's another thing I want to emphasize. I don't think it has to just be for professionals who are in those um, helping roles as their job. Um, we had students report about their helping roles as volunteers, helping family members, friends, internship experiences, etc., and um, their symptoms of compassion fatigue. And in fact, they ended up showing that they had, you know, levels of compassion fatigue that were as similar to those who are in professions. So I'm wanting to expand the idea that it could happen to anybody when they're in a, a, a helper role. But in addition to that, we had them um, rate their self-care behaviors and also their beliefs about self-care. And each of those were correlated with the two different parts of compassion fatigue, which is fascinating. So bear with me here a minute. Compassion, I mean, um, self-care behaviors, engaging in, exercise, um, going out and feeling the sun on your face, having a spiritual um, program, um, having social support, engaging in those behaviors was significantly correlated with the burnout part of compassion fatigue, but not with the se secondary traumatic stress component. Inversely or, or, or differently from that, self-care beliefs, what we tell ourselves while we are engaging in self-care and what we believe about it was significantly related to secondary traumatic stress, but not the burnout component. So the opposite, suggesting that both of those, self, engaging in self-care and our self-talk and what we believe about it are both important aspects of prevention, mitigating, inversely related to compassion fatigue as a whole, just two different parts of it. Now, again, this is preliminary. We've only looked at it with college students. But what I want to do is expand to people who are in other helping roles in the professions and see if this, this all holds up. But, um, you know, at least right now we know um, from a research level, it's important to, you know, deal with both of those aspects of self-care. It's so interesting because it's, um, it seems simplistic, right? So like, <laughs> how do you, how do you mitigate compassion fatigue? I don't know. You, you feel more positive about what you're doing and you take care of yourself, um, which it's, I mean, it's, it is kind of sad that, um, we aren't really, you know, a lot of us aren't really good at, at taking care of ourselves. Um, and you're absolutely right. There is so much negative association around taking that time or taking a break. Or mm -hmm. I know personally, when I started my, my business, there were lots of times where I would get very emotional and I would be like, I need to take a break, but my schedule didn't allow it. And I would feel that pressure and I would say, right, okay, I'm going to schedule a break for three weeks time. And I would, <laughs> I would struggle to get through those th three weeks until I could take that break. And every day I would come home and I would be like, right, okay, one more day, one more day. And it, you know, now I, I treat that completely different. I, I take, not only do I take breaks, but I also each, each week I leave off time um, mm -hmm. because it's so, so important. And, and for me, it's the fear of getting back to that place where mm -hmm. I felt like just hopeless. Like I can't, I, I need this time. I need to be able to do this. And I just can't. 
Right. And in some cases, you know, we're talking about life or death there. I mean, when we're talking about people committing suicide because they've experienced compassion fatigue and gotten to that point, you know, um, it's nothing to, to joke about. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, there are some, although they sound simple, implementing them and actually doing them and keeping them going is the challenge. And that's where things like this, this podcast are so important and why I feel so compelled to share information because I think it starts with awareness, all right? First, you know, being aware of what is compassion, what the heck is it, right? Some people may have never even heard of it. Um, They may be having those feelings and those symptoms and not have a name for it. Um, So um, that's actually one of the main um, things that can help and prevent compassion fatigue is, is, spreading, developing and spreading awareness, you know, knowing about it. So more people are talking about it. You are um, catching it in your coworkers. You're catching it in the people who are in your field, right? And you're talking about it and calling one another on it and watching each other's backs, right? Um, For it. Being able to identify the risk factors and detecting that. And I think having those free assessments, you know, some agencies may every now and then want to have their, you know, not require them necessarily. I don't know how that would work, but, you know, make that available for employees. You know, let's take that pro call and see where you're at. Um, And then let's talk about that as an intervention of what you could build in to help with what you're, you know, experiencing or or build in, you know, that self-care. And I think, too, what happens is we view self-care, again, as being this huge thing, when in fact it could be smaller little acts throughout the day that could be helpful, right? Instead of putting it off for, in three weeks, I'm going to get to do this big thing, right? So starting to build awareness about what could be simple, free, doable aspects of self-care that you could actually do. And one of my reasons for I put together a list of some sources just for, by pursuing the, the web. Um, and I'd be happy to send that to you as a handout. But I did it because a lot of people who work at animal shelters and in animal care don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of resources um, to plan big vacations and spa days and things like that. So I came up with some things that were doable, free, and um, you know didn't take a whole lot of training to be able to do, and even some simple like breathing techniques that can help with those physiological reactions of stress um, on a daily basis. So awareness, education, um, spreading the word about that, um, and, you know, focusing really on the prevention of it and building resilience to it. Because if somebody is, you know, at risk for it, or if they've had it and they're worried about going back, it probably won't be the last time that helper, a helper, will face this, right? But if you faced it and you've been able to get through it and use the tools, you start to have more confidence about it. You know, I did this when this started to happen and it helped. If I do it again, I can I can get ahead of this, right? And in fact, being able to share that with others and invite others to participate in that. So my dream for this is actually, you know, building awareness, learning more through my research and being able to give it away with um, interventions. And my ultimate goal, because I am, um, you know, with my school psychology background, I'm an assessment person. I teach a psychological testing assessment class about developing instruments, right? To be able to identify, you know, symptoms, problems, risk factors. And what I'd like to do is come up with like a compassion fatigue resilience instrument, which will tell, you know, in what areas people are lacking in terms of what they need to be more resilient 
from compassion fatigue and then tie those to specific types of interventions. For example, um, self-regulation, being able to regulate one's emotions, being able to calm one's mind, because you think about it, in the midst of compassion fatigue, replaying a trauma over and over in your head of an animal that an animal's experienced, how do you shut that off, right? How do you distract yourself? How do you stop that motor from running in the mind? Well, there's self-regulation techniques, you know, deep breathing, progressive relaxation, there's mindfulness that people can learn and, and giving people those tools, right? To be able to do that on their own um, because they may not have a lot of money to go um, con consistently to a therapist or a professional to do that for them. Uh, so those are some, you know, sort of dreams of mine for, you know, making this more accessible and available to people as a whole um, out there. Absolutely. And I would definitely be happy to, to share those, those resources um, mm -hmm. and even create some content around that as well to be able to share, because I mean, okay. My, my main kind of goal is to, to educate humans and for them to have the, the best lives possible with their dogs. But absolutely, when you were talking about, you know, the, the face masks and, and often I think of cups and how, you know, you can't, you can't give from an empty cup, like, right. and with those situations, I do a lot of coaching of humans. <laughs> Okay. So it's about yeah. the dogs, but at the same time, you know, I, they're only half of it. And I think that is a resource, especially, you know, with, with people who are caring for dogs who tend to be um, more difficult, I suppose there. So their behavior can be really um, challenging. There's a lot of emotional involvement with them. And I know a lot of people who, who do suffer um, maybe not necessarily with compassion fatigue, but just the day-to-day -day caring of these dogs can take mm -hmm. a lot out of a person. It can take a toll for sure. And I, I would equate that with, you know, being on the road to compassion fatigue, right? Unless somebody's making sure that they're taking care of themselves along the way as well. Um, and I know, you know, I've read, you know, some of your work and I've read some other articles about, you know, with the appropriate behavior training for animals helps reduce the risk of having to rehome and euthanize. And I'm sure those are those types of things that you and your colleagues face that could really um, lead to taking on secondary traumatic stress. Um, and I also kind of think about it as, you know, me coming from a school psychology background, thinking of parents who have children with autism, right? that have to spend a great deal of time caring for someone maybe even into adulthood and dealing with um, aggressive behaviors or difficult um, self-injurious behaviors. There's sort of like an analogy there of being a constant caregiver and feeling maybe helpless to help the person and, and very slow steps in turning around their behavior. I would think to that of the, the dog training, right? Seeing- yeah seeing those types of things happen could, can really, you know, have you have empathy, you have compassion for that and, and, and hurting your heart, you know, when it's not working. So I could see you all in your profession really, you know, encountering things that would put you at risk for compassion fatigue. I don't know as much about your field, you know, if you'd want to mention some examples and want me to tie it in, I certainly could, um, but whatever you think would be most helpful. I think a lot what happens, especially with being um, someone who is a professional who uses um, force-free or fear-free methods, you know, for me, it's very challenging to see um, others using different methods that 
when I look at a dog and I'm watching a video, you know, the, the average person might go, Oh, isn't that dog behaving? And you know, mm. where I look at that dog and I'm like, that dog is scared. That dog, it, that is borderline abuse, or that is using those methods to compromise that dog's, to shut down that dog's behavior. And it, it to be honest, I don't, I think it is important in my field to be aware of all types of methods and all types of tools, but I have to be in the right frame of mind knowing myself in order to, to watch that. And I have in the past been overexposed to it and I know exactly, you know, where that, that path leads. So it can weigh heavy on you if, and I've had friends send me, you know, videos, not, they're not trying to do anything, you know, negative against, but just have you seen this? And, and I have to say to them, please don't send me these videos (laughs) because I can't, you know, I open my phone to check a message and that's what I'm seeing. I'm not prepared mentally to see that. And it can really affect people in in the sense of it's hard to process that. It's hard knowing what you know and using the methods that you do and trying everything possible on a day-to-day basis to help people understand that we don't need to use these tools. We don't need to, you know, punish our dogs. That would be the main thing that I would think is very, very challenging. Okay. Yeah. So both of those relate all those examples relate to both the burnout and the secondary traumatic stress for sure. Um, The secondary traumatic stress that you're experiencing and and those others who work in your field, you're literally looking at videos of an animal who you, you, even if you don't know, you care deeply about the welfare and you're compassionate for these animals who can't speak for themselves, who are vulnerable, having things done to them and they're being traumatized and you pick up on that trauma and experiencing it secondarily, right? So you're experiencing secondary traumatic stress by seeing these videos or seeing this being done in action. The burnout I think comes in when it's almost like animal rescue and they refer to animal rescue sometimes as trying to empty the ocean with a um, teaspoon, right? (laughs) One teaspoon at a time. And, And the burnout may come that as much as you try to spread the word and you do your part, there are forces and things against it that are that are building up these practices that continue to harm animals and, and lead to trauma for them. And sometimes feel like it's, um, you get burned out because you just keep going and going, pushing through and you see little glimmers perhaps of making progress. And then you see, oh gosh, then there's this big thing where people are buying into, you know, this technique that is, that is once again harmful and, 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 and there it is again, you know, do you, you, do you keep pushing on, you know, there's that being tired, worn out um, part to it. So very real, I think, is, is that experience of those components of compassion fatigue that you've described. Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. And like I said, I, I recognize it in myself and it took a while for me to say, you know what, I, I can't have this just coming at me from all different angles. Um, and taking a real kind of examination of, you know, what can I do to maybe stop, you know, feeling this intensity? Because for me, it is an intensity and I do Mm -hmm. feel very passionate about what I do. Um, But it is that helpless factor of like, 
how do I, I'm trying everything I can to get this information out. I'm trying everything I can to, you know, help people understand that these, yes, they may look um, very quick um, and they may, you know, kind of go in line with, you know, behavior is embarrassing or behavior is problematic, but, you know, it's, it's not something that you want to be doing to your dogs. Um, but I think that is, everybody kind of makes their own judgment call with, with those. And I know some, some colleagues um, have no problem looking at videos like that, but I know for me, it's certainly, it certainly depletes me very, very quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that gets at that, um, you know, I even refer to myself as being, you know, highly sensitive, emotional, even I knew that from being a young child, you know, as a young child. And I think I have this um, deep level of empathy. And I think some people, you know, have those um, characteristics more than others and others are able to be a bit more stoic. And those are those kinds of things where when you ask me that question at this point, I really couldn't answer for you yet because I don't know that we know. Do you know what I mean? I would guess on the other end of the spectrum where you have people that are more like sociopaths, right? Where they don't have empathy, um, they're cold calculating. My guess would be that they don't ever have any kind of problem with compassion fatigue, right? Because they're, you know, they can be cold and cutthroat and whatever. So I think there are some, some personality factors that put some more people at risk for it than others. Um, but that's where that individual getting to know yourself and, and the um, vulnerable spots and then what you need to do to protect yourself and not feeling guilty that you can't look at those videos too. That's that belief, right? Um, you're allowed to take care of yourself and not look at those and not feel guilty that you can't. Same thing with me on social media. You know, I can only see so much of animals being returned, neglected, you know, another one's found um, and, and a mother with kittens, uh, you know, puppies. And so I just have to take, I have to not look at it sometimes. And, and, and more and more, more times than not, not look at it, right? Because, and, and tell myself, this isn't going to make me any better able to help the cause by doing that. I need to rejuvenate, um, you know, um, take care of myself, re rejuvenate, um, take a rest and, you know, fill my cup up, like you said, so that I'm able to um, continue to help or else I won't be able to help at all. And I think that's an important message to anyone. Um, and I'm very sensitive to of not, when I present this, you know, in workshops or I talk to people about this, it's very easy from a theoretical standpoint or from a discussion standpoint such as this to talk about, take a few minutes of self-care or you got to take care of yourself. When I go to a shelter and I see those shelter workers having to stay 11 o'clock, 12, you know, 12 in the morning, they haven't eaten, they haven't gone to the bathroom. And if they do stop, an animal might die. How do you tell someone like that to, you really need to take a break, right? <laughs> so it's balancing, helping people figure out realistically, you know what I mean? And so some of the, some of the things there that I suggest is, again, um, you know, having that self-care buddy or having a colleague that'll say, I can't handle this today. <laughs> it, can you do this today? And maybe another day I'll do this thing that, that takes less of a toll on you. Because there are some things that bother some people that don't bother another person. And being willing to trade that off, right? Or saying, I know you didn't sleep because you pulled an extra shift because somebody called out, you know, take tomorrow off. We'll get some volunteers to take care of this so you can have that time to, you know, go get lunch. So, you know, it really takes people working together and not being afraid to, uh, to ask for help. And I think that might be part of it too. You know, people are pretty good about helping others, but how hard is it to admit that you need help or ask someone for help? That's tough, right? 
So again, getting rid of that and, and, and being willing to tell trusted people who, who you, you care about, Hey, I'm struggling here. I really need help. Yeah, um, no, I, I completely agree with that. That is very, um, and again, with certain personalities, you know, uh, probably a few years ago, that would have been very difficult for, for me to say. Um, now it's a lot easier for me, but I would have, and I have really struggled to say to even close friends, I'm, I'm struggling to cope um, just well, from the fear of judgment, you know, like you don't want someone to think. And it was, for me, it was kind of that hustle culture where like, I'm doing well, you know, I'm great. Don't worry about me, you know? <laughs> and now it's like, yeah, I am doing well, but then there are also times where maybe I'm not doing well. <laughs> right. It's that pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep yeah. going on. Again, that's something that we have those messages from early on. Um, and a lot of people are, are you know, taught, reinforced, you know, we're taught that in our schools, achieve, 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 well, achieve till what you, you know, you have a heart attack or you have no life. And I, and I really, you know, um, we haven't brought up the pandemic, but as much as, and as terrible as this pandemic has been, I really think at some levels it's had people slow down. It's had people really take stock of their lives and what is important. And maybe if anything good can come out of it, it might be the ability to ask for help and to have to not always be a superhuman, you know, person that pulls yourself up from the, from the, um, your boot with your bootstraps. It, it may, Kata, you know, um, raise the white flag, you know, now and again and, and surrender. Say, I just can't right now. And, but with that purpose of, you know, taking a rest, rejuvenating yourself, and you'll come back even stronger and be a better helper, you know, kind of with that view of it. Um, and I think that gives hope, you know, um, and, and then empowerment, you know, we can do something about this, we can help one another, we're not alone. Um, all of that is just, you know, if we take that on, and we help one another, and we, we start having these conversations like we are today, um, and then someone else talks about it and spreads the word to somebody else. It can really just get, really get out there and um, we can make it, you know, something that's very positive um, and helpful, I think. Yes. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned about the pandemic because I found, and sometimes I feel guilty about saying it, but I found that it's been, it's been really beneficial for me to have that pause button and to, to really reevaluate not only my business, but my life in general. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I do, I sometimes I feel, cause I know that there has been enormous loss and, you know, on, on many kind of, you know, many sectors and for many people. Um, but for me, I, it's been a, it, it's been a blessing in disguise. Um, mm -hmm. I also wanted to mention, you know, something that I find really, really reinforcing and, and helpful is when I get messages from strangers. So people who, are maybe on my social media and I have no idea that they really exist. And they just send a message huh. that says, this has helped me or thank you for all you do. Um, and those I find even more so than maybe somebody I know telling me good job, or I'm really proud of you. Or those messages for me are like, wow, thank you. That adds a little bit of fuel to my fire. And I think we should, we should do more of, I'm, I love telling somebody, you know, Hey, you're doing a really good job or thank you so much for even just like sharing my post or even just mentioning something that I think is important. And I, I believe like if we did more of that, mm -hmm. just those simple thank yous or just those simple acknowledgements, 
that really can just, I know for me personally, it really <laughs> improves my day if I'm having a, a crappy day, but yeah, I'd like we to could spread save, that. <laughs> yeah, we could save somebody. You don't know, yeah. that might save somebody and you don't know, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, and that's building compassion satisfaction up, right? That's the kinds of things that, that keep you going and, and that you enjoy about your work. And, um, you know, that's great. Um, that reminded me too, I did a workshop a number of years ago for the shelter and I gave out from my department and my university in the psychology department, little brains, squeeze brains that they could um, <laughs> use for de-stressing. Yeah. <laughs> and you, know, you don't know, you know, there are people from a lot of different walks of life, you know, whatever. Um, I had one young lady, she was very young. She worked with the dogs in the kennels and she posted the little brain and she said, thank you so much, Carrie, for your workshop. This saves my life on a daily basis. Saves my life. I mean, that's strong, right? Those are strong yeah. words for something that was, I felt was a very small gesture, um, you know, through a, through a workshop. And, and, you know, people that'll post that or will call me or text me and unofficially, you know, ask me my opinion and, um, for help and more self-care resources. Yeah, that's, that just makes it all worth it. You mm. know, you're right. Um, you know, again, I think I talk a lot about society and what we value and the things that we do, you know, people tend to focus more on the negative um, drama people focus on and um, we'll share that a lot, right? Tragedies, that's what makes the news. Um, but if we could turn that around and make, you know, the good things, the kindness, the compassion, the compliments, if we could make that what is cool and popular and exciting, you know, again, we could save a life or save lives um, along the way here. So I, I love that. And I love that point that you say, you never know, you never know who's heard you, right? You never yeah. know. And, and sometimes you do know when they make that comment, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I always, my point is kind of education as well. And, um, and I think I've, I may have said it in a podcast before, but I view having a social media page. I mean, my personal page is pretty boring, but um, <laughs> my business page is like, I just use that as, as kind of the mouthpiece to, to help someone. And the reason why I make as much content as, as I do is because I hope that that gets shared. I hope that somebody sees that. And even if they don't even remember where it came from, it just plants a seed that maybe travels into something else because none of our ideas really are like original, you know, these kind of, they always come from, they stem from something else. So mm -hmm. if somebody sees something that I posted and it inspires them or, you know, it plants a seed, then that's, that's what keeps me creating content. <laughs> right. Right. And what a great motive, you know what I mean? And when that, I think when, I think that gets back to what we were talking about being on purpose, you know, when I'm doing something for what I might label as the right reasons, right. To give back, to help. It just feels like it's effortless and it's not stressful. And, you know, when it's ego driven, right, for benefit, money, you know, building myself up, that's when it becomes, you know, restricted and stressful and it's for the wrong reasons. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool with the, when it comes back to the passion and the values and, and the motives for why we do, you know, what we do in, in any area of our, our lives. Yeah. I mean, I do also do the latter, of course, but. <laughs> But we have to eat and we have to feed our, we have to buy, I have to buy cat food and a yeah. lot of it, so, you know, <laughs> someday, you know, here I am saying I'm giving these away, but yes, there may be a day where I'm, you know, 
starting a business and and for people who can afford it this may be there may be a charge for my my services um but yeah yeah that'll be to buy the cat food and donate to the Exactly. <laughs> it all goes. That's what I think sometimes as well, because like um, I created a meme a long time ago when it was like, what I spend my money on. I literally spend my money on my dogs, like ask Amazon. <laughs> so when you, when you pay me as my client, my dogs, thank you. <laughs> um, so one thing I did want to address with you was myths. So I like it's kind of like a, a professional passion of mine is, is busting kind of myths. So um, A, what are some myths around compassion fatigue? And, and B, kind of, can we bust some of those? Okay, sure. I have a few of those after, you know, I gave a little thought to it. Um, I think one of the, the big myths is that compassion fatigue can only occur in um, professional, like frontline workers, like firefighters, police officers, doctors, nurses, those on the front lines that are experiencing perhaps life and, and death issues on a daily basis. Um, uh, and I don't think that's true. Um, I think that anyone in a helping role that's taking on the stress and suffering of someone else um, over a period of time is at risk for uh, developing compassion fatigue. And I don't think that we emphasize that enough. We don't emphasize um, other types of roles. And not that, you know, first responders and people are not important. Of course, they're, they're very much at risk and we should be behind them and they're doing a great service. But I think that's a myth that that can only be in those, you know, types of professions and it can only be through a professional role. And that's part of, you know, why I wanted to do my research on college students because you know, let's see if they experience compassion fatigue. They're not professionals yet, but let's see, you know, in their daily lives, internships with friends, family members. And sure enough, when I started talking to my um, college students about it, they're like, oh my God, yeah, Dr. Schwanz, that happens to me all the time. And I'm like, yeah, we're on to something. And, and not only is that important, because what if we can catch it that early before they even go into professions in increasing that awareness and what they can do to take care of themselves and build those habits, right? To keep it and sustain it. So that would be one myth. I just um, wanted to, um, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to mention because I was, um, I know you're talking about it's like preliminary, you know, work and things, but I would be surprised that people who weren't professionals wouldn't be even higher kind of at risk because when you are a professional, at least in my experience, you know, you do occasionally hear about how important self-care is and things like that. Whereas if you're just caring for a parent who's ill or a child, like you were saying before, with, mm -hmm. with special needs, you may not even come across those resources at all. Right. Right. Absolutely. But we don't, that's not really, I think I found one article over the last, whatever, 20 years that talked about it with a group of volunteers, like nobody in general, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why, um, fingers crossed that I get this darn, darn article published soon, um, <laughs> because it, you know, it opens up those very important points, you know, we need to expand this, we need to expand this to people in general, not just professionals, and, you know, we need to look at that self-care beliefs uh, part of it, but that's what I, I want to continue to to look at those those things because mm -hmm. I think that is a myth myth um yeah so number two um myth would be that there has to be some sort of a major crisis that occurs that a person experiences like a pandemic a natural disaster you know a hurricane earthquake etc for somebody to develop compassion fatigue 
And I believe that that's a myth. Of course, that can happen through natural disasters and major um, uh, crises and things such as that. But it can also build up over time from the day-to-day -day stress of experiencing somebody else's trauma. Um, so I think that's it. We think of it as a big occasion that occurs and, and that puts people at risk where, where people are, are at risk on a daily basis. Um, and that sort of piggybacks off of that first one. You know, you're at risk if you're working in a helping profession, but you may be at risk if you're um, giving of yourself to help others who are under stress or traumatized and not taking care of yourself, you know, along the way. So I think that's a myth um, as well. Um, and then a third one I came up with was that it's not preventable um, or that you can't see it coming. Um, and that's not the case, right? Um, oftentimes people will talk about it was too late, you know, and too late for somebody might be that they attempted to take their own life. Too late might be that they walked away from a job or a profession that they really loved. You know, too late could be that they've turned to drugs or alcohol because they can't deal. Um, but I think that we can start to, again, through this awareness, this education, through sp spreading all of this to other people, um, we can start catching it um, in people that you said may have never even thought about uh, it possibly happen happening. And through the research and the practice of this, catching it earlier, you know, like um, I'll look, I'll look more into what you were talking about, about first signs versus, you know, the progression of it, I guess, is what we would, would call that, you know, at what point are, are some of these, you know, warning signs or red flags um, possibly going to lead to compassion fatigue. Um, maybe it doesn't matter, you know, where that timing is. Maybe it's just, you know, what are the red flags and wherever we catch it, you know, is the most important. Um, so, you know, that's another part of me wanting to look at it with undergrads. Maybe we need to start talking about compassion fatigue with elementary school kids, you know? Um, let's start it as early as possible. Um, so again, it, I believe that it is preventable or at least, you know, mitigated. It's not something, a myth may be, well, you've got it and you're doomed. Um, and that's not the case, right? Um, you can prevent it, you can mitigate the negative effects of it, and um, you can uh, become more resilient to it, like I was saying, right? And, and ward off it repeating itself, episodes in your life. Um, so those were three myths that I um, thought about and came up with. Excellent. No, thank you very much for that. Um, so what would you say is the best approach when handling compassion fatigue? So um, we, you did talk about the kind of the assessment tool to mm -hmm. kind of give you a, a heads up on it, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say is the next step for somebody who maybe has that assessment tool or really believes that that is the, the direction that they're headed? So I think if it's in a work setting, um, you know, talking to one's supervisor about it. Um, and that's important, right? So we need to build awareness for those who are the bosses, the supervisors of whatever, you know, agencies. Um, and hopefully, you know, people are becoming more aware of that, particularly with the pandemic and it's more in the news and whatnot. But, but going to a supervisor and seeing what resources are available um, to help with it. In some cases, it may be HR, you know, having some kind of programs um, it may be some services in the community that could help with that, maybe low cost sliding scale counseling services, or those who can afford it, you know, seeking out a professional to get help, you know, for the different types of, of problems and, and symptoms. There are also things that people could do on their own, you know what I mean, like the um, learning more about the self care and implementing those in their lives. 
um, self-care behaviors and techniques and things such as that. Um, and just really sort of taking the toll. Um, one of the things I would like to look at and do is um, how to help people come up with their own like self-care plans so that they are more um, sort of empowered for themselves that when they um, see problems creeping in, um, what they could do to, to help it, you know, have those, have those strategies, have those tools. Uh, I think um, talking with others that you trust in your life about it too, um, becoming more educated yourself about it, right? If you take the pro call and you're seeing that, find out what you can about compassion fatigue, um, what can be done to help it, uh, self-care um, activities to engage in, social support, um, and in some cases that may be uh, seeking out and getting professional help, I think hmm. would be what would be the trajectory for that. Um, and what would you say makes compassion fatigue worse? Denying it, um, being blind to it, perhaps. Um, I think pushing, trying to push through right, is probably the worst. Um, becoming depleted and more depleted and um, forcing oneself to just continue on and on and push and push and not letting anyone else know that you're struggling, I think makes it worse. There are aspects of a work environment that can make it worse. If you have supervisors or bosses that say, you know, I don't want to hear it, you know, tough. Um, they ones that won't help, you know, listen to you and problem solve, um, because there are aspects, you know, of the way uh, organizations or a, a job is set up that it could make burnout and, um, you know, compassion fatigue worse, possibly, if it is in a profession. Um, and not engaging in the self-care or the self-care beliefs, telling oneself that you shouldn't be taking care of yourself, um, feeling guilty about it those types of things. And again, any other sort of previous personal trauma could put, make it worse that if you're experiencing it with somebody else, it could magnify that. And any other pre-existing um, conditions like depression, anxiety, if people have had a uh, suicidal ideation in the past, any of that can put them much more at risk for having worse, I guess you would say, episodes or experiences of, of compassion fatigue. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I think sometimes people do just push things out of, you know, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, you know, it'll get better. I'll get over this, you know, right. I, it's just a phase or, <laughs> and it's like, it's lingering. We have to, we have to address these things if we're feeling them. And I think something I've definitely taken on is if I'm starting, and that's probably from, you know, kind of my past experiences, but if I'm starting to feel that way, that's the time to immediately look at what, you know, what am I doing? What's going on? How, how can I ease this? You know, is there something that I'm maybe forgetting or leaving out? Um, or just, you know, what's going on around the time? If it's a really hectic time, wow. are those factors kind of worsening the, you know, whatever's going on professionally or vice versa personally. Um, so I've, I've definitely in my own personal life looked at, you know, when I'm starting to feel a certain way, mm -hmm. that's time to really just go, oh, hit the stop button, yeah. pause, assess and, and make some changes immediately. 
Yeah, that made me think of something. Um, it made me think of that cumulative stress, right, is part of burnout. So everybody experiences stress, but being able to recognize it, and it's almost like um, the amount of stress factors, you know, um, the more of them, the more at risk you are and the more vulnerable people are to um, sort of starting to experience symptoms of compassion fatigue. So being able to learn more and understand stress better, right, before it ends up being cumulative stress and burnout. And there's a lot of great resources out there that we've learned over the years um, about stress and stress reduction. So, um, you know, making oneself aware of those and practicing those aspects um, in your life. Um, and so we've talked a lot about compassion fatigue, and I, I thank you so much for your time, because mm -hmm. like I said before, I really hope that people take information away from this and even better if they take it away and, and do something with it. But right. if no one takes nothing else away from this whole entire talk, what would you hope that at least they take away? Um, start talking about it, I think. I think, I think the awareness I think the awareness is is the most important thing, right? Um, to not keep, uh, I don't quite know how to say it, but um, I guess if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? And if people are struggling or suffering, realizing that you have to do something different. So not denying that it may be happening any longer and being willing to um, talk about it with somebody else, no matter who that is, you know, um, I guess being able to bring that up. Um, and also, you're not alone and to help with the stigma of that, right? It doesn't mean that you're a weak person. It doesn't mean that you're not a great helper. Um, and, and to think about it that, you know, you may be going through something that's um, hurtful or hard or difficult but you will come out on the other side. And then guess what? You probably will have learned something that you can pass on to help someone else. I know that wasn't one thing. <laughs> I think it's hard. I can't, help, it? It. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, um, I, I can't harp on awareness enough. Yeah. I really can't. Um, so I think awareness. But I also um, think if they've gotten to this point in the podcast, <laughs> Oh yeah, they are <laughs> probably doing good. <laughs> like Let me you, turn you, you, you made it past that point. There's been lots of points to take away, but um, what, would you, what would you hope would be the biggest takeaway? Let's start there. What would you personally, and then I'll I'll see if something sparks for me. <laughs> Um, I think the biggest week to take away is the awareness of it. So like, it, like you said, talking about it, I think that is the biggest thing because there are lots of things that we just don't talk about in my profession, um, as people, you know, there's tons of things that we just act like, you know, the elephant in the room. It's like, I'm feeling a certain way. I don't want to say it, I, how it might be perceived by somebody or what they may think of me. It's a risk, it's a risk, you know, take the risk, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, and, and, and me too, you know, being a professor, you know, you want to um, perhaps put out a certain image that you know a lot of things. And um, a lot of times they think about, you know, college students don't know that we're really human, but I think what <laughs> makes me a really great teacher, mentor, educator, whatever, is the fact that I am willing to take the risk and be vulnerable and, say, hey, this happened to me too. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to a lot of other people. So I think like for you being a, a, a role model, being someone that's known um, 
it's uh, it's important that you do take that risk and have that responsibility of, you know, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone and not to be ashamed of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, this happened because we care. <laughs> we care too deeply sometimes to the detriment of our own selves. But what a great quality to have is to is to care. Um, and just being able to balance that enough so that it doesn't take us down and we can continue to be great helpers and, and spread the word and do what we're doing, I think is important. So I think um, balance might be a nice word too. Mm-hmm. Uh, finding balance in all of this. We're not saying give up doing what you love. We're talking about let's find some balance so you can do what you love and do it even better and enjoy it and, and be authentic and experience it instead of just having it be something that you start maybe going through the motions and just try to get through, you know, life is short enough. It's, 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 we don't need to be trying to just get through it and get to that vacation because we're, we're struggling each day. So let's make this something um, great for others and, and also great for us along the way too, I think. Yeah. So balance. Dr. Carey, I wanted to, again, thank you for your time and explaining very, very thoroughly compassion fatigue and the different paths and facets off of that. And if people did want to maybe learn more or contact you, where could they find you? So you're very welcome. I was excited to be asked to do this podcast today. And if people want more information about compassion fatigue and any research related to it, they can reach out to you at Dog Logical and you can um, basically connect them with me in that way. And I am also on Facebook, Carrie Schwanz, if anybody would like to message me about finding other resources about compassion fatigue, uh, education about it, and also research. If you have concerns about yourself or somebody you know, um, maybe having symptoms or uh, evidence of compassion fatigue, I know that Renee is going to provide as part of this podcast some resources uh, where you can reach out uh, if you need something above and beyond just information about it for um, any kind of personal needs or crisis situations or things like that. Um, Those resources will be provided. Hey there, listeners. I hope you enjoyed your episode. I just wanted to take this moment to remind you that if you are experiencing behavior concerns with your dog, you have the ability to work with me virtually. There is so much that can be done through virtual consultations. Even what I offer in my initial behavior assessments really gets people pointed in the right direction and started on that journey towards helping their dog feel more confident. So if you need some help with your dog, or maybe you've been thinking about refreshing some of your training, I offer both one-to-one virtual consultations and online group classes. My current group classes are my foundation puppy course, which is for puppies between the ages of eight weeks to six months. Then I have my new course, Acing Adolescence, which is for puppies from the age of around six months to 18 months. And finally, Crazy to Calm, which addresses both newly adopted dogs and also dogs that might need a little bit of a refresher course. You can book and find more information available on my website at rplusdogs.com. I so look forward to working with you.